All right, good afternoon. Um, welcome to Approach to Fever in the Tropics. I'm Doug Collins. Uh, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I work at University of Cincinnati. I'm a family physician. My, oh, I, oh, boy, I was slow, but thank you. All right. Um, and um, if you have your app or the website, there's a PDF um, on there. Um, if you don't want to go digital, there are handouts. Um, we might run out, so if we do, we might need people to share. But if you go to the GMHC 2022 website and go into today's session, if you click on this session, there are two links. One is to this PowerPoint, and the other is to this PDF. So you can follow along with the PDF or with one of these worksheets. All right, and just slip up your hand if you would like a worksheet. Chris has them, and he can pass those out to you. If you are watching online, uh, the PDF is there for you to follow along. So uh, great to meet you all. Um, we're going to dive right in. This is going to be a case-based uh, approach, thinking through fever, and we're going to kind of build on different pearls as we go. Any questions before we dive in? I don't know how long they're going to leave this on the website. I th most GMHC things stay up pretty long, so uh, I I'm not sure. I don't have an answer to that. All right. So while Chris is passing those out, it looks like there's a lot of hands up for those, so maybe try to share with someone next to you in case we are running low. I have nothing to disclose. Uh, my wife and I worked in Cambodia from 2002 to 2011 um, with Team Expansion and Pioneers, uh, doing a mix of medical mission work and church planting. I'm a family physician, and in that role there, really got to know tropical medicine quite a bit. Uh, and now I uh, help teach that in our family medicine uh, department and residency program. Um, so that's kind of my background. Our learning objectives are to really organize and prior prioritize a differential diagnosis for a very difficult topic, uh, fever in the tropics, describe an effective approach to diagnosing a patient who has an undifferentiated fever, and describe the cause, clinical presentation, diagnosis, and management of a few important causes. And those will be some of our cases. So I'm going to dive right in. We're going to keep this interactive, so feel free to take a chance and shout out ideas as I throw questions at you. Um, and it's going to be a lot. So as they say in the Matrix, I think, buckle your seatbelts because Kansas is going bye-bye. All right, case one, fever and headache. A 32-year-old non-pregnant woman living in rural Cambodia presents with the complaint of fever and generalized headache that began a few hours ago. Exam shows a temperature of 101 Fahrenheit and is otherwise negative. So a bona fide fever and a headache, and this was my wife. Non-pregnant, otherwise healthy, 32 years old, and a fever and headache have hit in the tropics. What further information would you like? Okay, so swimming, exposures. Uh, we were right by the Mekong River. Uh, Shistosoma Mekongi lives in that river, uh, but we did not think that was this. We hadn't gone swimming in it. Other exposure questions? Mosquitoes. It is rainy season. Mosquitoes are out. Uh, so, yes, we are thinking, uh-oh, rainy season. Mosquito-borne diseases. Flu food. Yeah, food exposure. Any kind of adventure eating. Did you eat a dangerous meal? Whatever. There was nothing we could pinpoint there. Those are great questions, and we're getting at kind of risk exposure. 
All right, what's on your differential? What are some things that jump to mind? Meningitis, shout loud. Malaria. Malaria. Very good, yes. Anything else? How about flu? Flu is everywhere in the world, okay? And in the tropics, it can happen in bimodal, trimodal curves. It doesn't kind of just happen in the winter. COVID, COVID other viruses, arboviruses, dengue, things like that. So our list is pretty long. So how would you manage this case? Tricky question. Um, this one was kind of a slam dunk for us because there was an outbreak of dengue. It tends to happen in cycles in a lot of regions of the world because one person gets it and now that 80s Egypti mosquito bites them and spreads it. And so suddenly a whole cohort of kids are getting dengue in that region. And then the adults who have never lived in that region start getting it, things like that. So that's what we had heard was out and we thought this is dengue. Um, and we'll dive a little deeper into dengue. Um, this is the village we were working in. Um, it flooded now and then uh, and sat right next to the beautiful Mekong River. We were wondering why didn't Noah swat those two mosquitoes. Uh, and we all thought we deserved a T-shirt that said dengue sucks. All right. So dengue fever is case one. And then I'll share a few pearls based on this case. But first, a little about dengue. Uh, it's nicknamed breakbone fever. That's from Dr. Benjamin Rush from the 1800s. Uh, the cause is a flavivirus with four serotypes, which makes dengue very tricky to manage. And I'll talk a little bit more about why that is. But basically, if you've had one, you can still get three others if they're in your region or wherever you're traveling. Um, it's spread by the Aedes mosquito, uh, Aedes aegypti, Aedes albopticus. Um, the 80s mosquito is nicknamed in different parts of the world tiger mosquito, uh, so Asian tiger mosquito, zebra mosquito. It's famous for having these little white stripes on it, a little black mosquito with white stripes, and it feeds with its bottom down. So if you're working in the tropics, you can make a habit of trying to kill the mosquito and then look at it and see what kind it is that bit you. All right. Um, your differential, if you're thinking dengue, should also include chikungunya. Has anyone heard of chikungunya? All right, quite a few of you. Chikungunya, um, I like to tell uh, learners, think of dengue plus arthritis. If you have someone with what looks like dengue, but they also have a lot of joint pain, upper extremities, lower extremities, think about chikungunya. Um, chick is also spread by the mosquito and uh, can cause a lot of debility. I'll get back to chick in a second. Um, so dengue is famous for a saddleback fever curve. You get a fever, it goes down, and then it comes back up. That's a little different than like flu and some of the other illnesses we're used to. Um, and like many viruses, it has a short incubation period, maybe two to seven days. It's famous for a retroorbital headache, but really any vague headache um, is kind of common with dengue. Um, a lot of travelers have had dengue and didn't even know it. So there's a lot of subclinical dengue as well. So it's not going to always follow the rules and look classic. Um, just a fever might be dengue. Um, it often has a rash. It can be a really itchy rash, and there's like this early rash and then a late rash. Um, that can be very bothersome to people. Um, that can be the worst part of dengue for some people. Uh, and then dengue can cause liver inflammation, and it can cause viral suppression. So one of the labs you want to follow, probably most importantly in anyone with dengue, is their CBC. Because you'll watch their platelet count go down, down, down. It might get a little scary. 
Um, and you just need to make sure it bottoms out without being in too much of a danger zone and then make sure it's coming back up. And that can give you a hint that this is dengue. The WHO gives dengue fever grades. So there's dengue fever, but then there's also dengue hemorrhagic fever. And the people that are most at risk of dengue hemorrhagic fever are kids five to nine years old. And typically that's because they're also the ones that are likely getting exposed to their second serotype of dengue. But it's that second serotype when your immune system's already seen this disease before, but now it's seeing a different serotype of it and something goes wrong and we get too leaky and we get too bleedy. And so that becomes dengue hemorrhagic fever. And it can develop into shock. Um, so supportive care is the mainstay of treatment of dengue. And a rule for you guys that will be one of our pearls is avoid NSAIDs until you know you're not dealing with a hemorrhagic fever, such as dengue. Um, use extra caution with dengue in the um, critical phase, which is kind of days five through eight. Uh, sometimes we let our foot off the gas because that fever goes down, but that's a critical time to keep the patient well hydrated. Uh, because that's when things can start going wrong in the immune system. And then also anticipate anyone with dengue often will have this convalescent phase that dengue also can have a nickname break heart fever, this lingering depression and just feeling down and drained for many weeks after dengue is fairly common. So if we look at a curve of dengue, the first uh, section there shows you that kind of that uh, saddleback fever curve that we were talking about. And then day three through six is on here as kind of this shock and bleeding, or I think I had five to seven. So this time where we call it the critical phase, um, where you've got to watch it really carefully. And then the CBC, you're going to watch the hematocrit go up, hemoconcentration, and then you'll watch the platelet count go down. That's the pattern with dengue. Um, and then serology follows the rules of typical viruses. Um, it's generally not going to be positive in the first few days uh, before you start seeing IgM and then IgG. If you're in a low-resource setting and you can't get any labs, there's a test called the tourniquet test. You can put a blood pressure cuff on the upper arm of a patient, inflate the cuff for five minutes between the systolic and diastolic pressure, hold it there for five minutes between that pressure. So you might need to kind of keep the bulb inflated and then let off, and after five minutes, if you see in a one-inch square space on the volar forearm, the hairless side of your forearm, if you see 20 or more dots, petechiae, then that's a positive tourniquet test, and it suggests capillary fragility due to dengue. Well, capillary fragility, which often is dengue in, in that situation. Um, sensitivity of that is 60%, not great. But uh, And the specificity is 70%. So a helpful test. It'll shift your likelihood ratio, and it's a, a little better as a test for women, young children, and later presenters. I mentioned chikungunya. Um, if you're thinking dengue, you should also think of chikungunya. The name chikungunya is from a Makandi word or maybe Swahili word that means that which contorts. It's an alpha virus. Uh, very similar to dengue in some ways, but then it has this uh, potential for horrible arthritis. So 57% of people who have had chikungunya have persisting arthritis at 15 months afterwards. Um, and then 12% still have some arthritis at three years 
after chick. So arthritis is a big part of chikungunya. So if you've ruled out dengue and you know it's not a hemorrhagic fever and you're thinking chikungunya and they have arthritic pain, then you definitely do want to use NSAIDs. Okay? But you don't want to use NSAIDs um, if you're worried about a hemorrhagic fever. So those are a few background um, points on dengue and chikungunya based on case one. We have a teammate who worked in Cambodia with us. She got both of these um, at different times. She wrote about chikungunya. It was far worse for me than dengue fever, uh, and that's going to vary based on each person. I have never hurt so bad, and my body was really contorted while having it, that which contorts. I could not sit up without uh, help. I had all the classic symptoms, fever, extreme joint pains, and a rash. For one month after, I could barely do anything without pain in my feet, knees, wrists, and fingers. Um, it was scary, too, because I thought it might last all my life. So that's chikungunya. So just an aside there. Um, the arboviruses are the arthropod-borne viruses. They are many, and it's very overwhelming to all of us to think about all of these. I have a little Venn diagram up there, and in the very middle of it is dengue. And that's because dengue can have generally CNS symptoms, fever, arthralgia, rash symptoms, and hemorrhagic uh, symptoms. So it's the one unique arbovirus that kind of has all three of those syndromes um, together. Um, but the arboviruses is a long list, and we'll look at those a little more here in case two. So. Wrapping up case one, our pearls are, get the full story of risk exposure. You guys asked some great questions. Where exactly did this person go? What exactly did they do? What kind of risks did they take? What kind of exposure to food? What time of year is it? All of these kind of questions. Your second uh, pearl is avoid NSAIDs in undifferentiated fever until proven non-hemorrhagic. And your third uh, pearl is beware the arboviruses. That should be on your list, uh, on your differential for fever in the tropics. Let me pause there. And for those of you who came in a little late, there's a PDF on uh, the website under this lecture. You can open that, and that is this page that has these blanks that we're filling out as we go, if you want to follow along. I think we ran out of handouts. Chris has a few more. If you want a handout, slip up your hand and maybe you'll get one. All right. Any questions about case one? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, what about acetaminophen? Yes, dengue can cause some hepatitis, but as long as it's kind of under that, whatever, four or five times greater than normal for ALT, AST, generally speaking, we know that acetaminophen is dose-dependent. So as long as you're using a routine normal dose, you're going to be in the safe zone generally. But you do, you know, if you had some other symptoms of concern where you're worried about a more raging hepatitis, um, I didn't see horrible hepatitis with dengue, but I did see it where it's bad enough that the person's not eating and the LFTs are bumped up a little bit. Other questions? All right, um, we're going to, this is an overwhelming topic, and as we do these pearls, things will kind of unfold, and my hope is you'll start getting kind of a feel for how you would approach fever in the tropics. So case two, 
Fever and epistaxis, so a nosebleed. What would you think if this boy presented to your hospital in Afghanistan with fever, headache, epistaxis, and bruising? All right, so he's a little boy, and what's he got on his back? A sheep, yeah. So, any additional information that you want? His fever syndrome is fever with headache, kind of like case one, but now we've got something else going on. Bleeding, bruising, so something hemorrhagic going on. So we're thinking of hemorrhagic fevers, and he's got a sheep on his back. Okay, there's something going on here, and I'm going to kind of skip ahead to save us time on this case, because this is not one that needs to be like highest on your list most of the time. But on our differential for this case needs to be the viral hemorrhagic fevers, right? Ebola's of the world, dengue hemorrhagic fever, yellow fever, um, and the one that this was, which is CCHF, not Christian Community Health Fellowship. (laughs) And when I Googled it, that was first. It's Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. And I skipped this question that I want to go back to. Are you overwhelmed? Right? Hearing this case, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Fever is overwhelming. There's a great article from New England Journal for Fever and Returned Travelers, and they have this master algorithm, and I gave you that on the back of the PDF. Um, And in that article, they said the topic is bewildering. Um, That was their word. I thought that was a good word for it. All right. So Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever Um, is one that happens in outbreaks uh, related often in the Muslim world to the celebration Eid al-Adha. And that is the celebration of Abraham and remembering his sacrifice of Isaac and how the Lord provided. And so um, during that sacrifice, there's a lot of contact with mammals, sheep in particular, that have been exposed to ticks, the hyaloma tick, And if they are carrying that, then you start to get this um, body secretion spread of CCHF. 66 confirmed cases in Afghanistan in 2016. There's a map of the regions of the world. It's largely related to uh, this celebration. Um, So that also helps us in a lot of ways as we think about fever, and that's why I bring this case up. So our pearls from this case, which is a short one, is don't sweat it if you feel overwhelmed. That's normal, okay? I'm going to give you some helpful hints, and you'll keep kind of working toward narrowing it down to figure out what you want to do for each person. The second pearl is consider local causes early. In case one, that was an easy diagnosis. Everyone around us had dengue. Case two, that actually probably would be a fairly easy diagnosis also because there'd be this outbreak. So consider local causes early. What would a local provider think this is? And then my last pearl here is run the taxonomic differential for fever. And so what I mean by that is, you know, we're kind of used to thinking about maybe chest pain. And you might run your differential for chest pain thinking anatomically from skin all the way down to the heart for what could be causing this chest pain. But then you might also think about, well, but I also want to think about what could cause chest pain from a risk stratification perspective. And so I'm going to think about heart first and what else makes me worried. Or I might think about physiology, and that might bring up something else. And I think with fever, it's helpful to just stop at some point 
and think of the old outline of taxonomy about what can cause fever. So the first rule is, remember that there are some non-infections that cause fever, right? Alcohol withdrawal, um, a neoplasm, any, a lot of cancers cause fevers, immune, immunologic diseases, rheumatologic diseases. So don't assume it's an infection, all right? But our focus is on the infections, and if we want to go to the taxonomy of causes of infection, we're going to go from small to big, viral to bacterial, getting bigger, to fungal, to protozoal, and to helminths. And this can just be a nice kind of metacognitive moment where you take a pause and run this list so that you don't miss something. So, for example, in the bacterial category, we're used to thinking of the common stuff we see here, the cosmopolitan causes of fever. But when you're running this differential, um, when you come to bacteria, Remember to also think about mycobacteria, like TB, and rickettsiae, like the ones spread by ticks, and spirochetes, and we'll come back to those. So let's break this differential down, and uh, this will be a little overwhelming for the next minute, but I just want to throw this at you as one of the kind of rubrics for you to think about fever. So if we look at viruses... Um, there's a few to highlight there. I mentioned flu already. That's often uh, year-round in the tropics. Um, HIV and the hepatitis viruses are all viruses that should be on our list. Um, we talked about the arboviruses already, like dengue and chick. We talked about viral hemorrhagic fevers, like CCHF. And then obviously now we're also thinking about SARS-CoV-2. And if you're in a region uh, where there's an Ebola outbreak, you would want to think about that. Or in the Middle East, MERS-CoV. So depending on where you are, those are some of the viruses. Let's go to bacteria. Some of the ones I want to highlight, in addition to those cosmopolitan causes, would be typhoid, mycobacterium TB, so tuberculosis, the spirochetes, of which there are only three, that affect humans. Um, those are treponema causing syphilis, Borrelia causing relapsing fever, and leptospirosis. So those are your three spirochetes to think about. The rickettsiae are important to think about, and we'll come back to that also. And then there's other zoonotic diseases like anthrax and brucellosis, and the latter, brucellosis, I won't come back to. That causes undulating fever, and that's famous for exposure to unpasteurized dairy as part of the history behind that one. I'm going to skip the funguses, the fungi, and go to the protozoa and the helminths. And now we're getting to bigger organisms. Within the world of protozoa, think about amoebiasis and amoebic liver abscess as a cause of fever. Malaria and leishmaniasis as two big protozoa that are kind of the blood and tissue protozoa. And then under the helminths, um, think about the nematode or roundworm strongyloidiasis and the trematode or fluke schisto. All right, that is a ton. I just threw a giant fire hose aimed right at you. And I love this far side. Mr. Osborne, may, may I be excused? My brain is full. Um, that's how I feel after running that taxonomic list, and I'm the one that wrote it up. So I can imagine how you guys feel. All right, so we're going to move forward into case three. Any questions up to this point? All right. 
By the way, if anyone sees a question in the chat from virtual watchers, I don't have that up here. Um, So feel free to let me know. Case three, fever and abdominal pain. Um, This is a case I encountered working on the Thai-Burma border as a resident, working with a family doctor who had been on this border at a hospital for 30 years. Uh, An incredible family and incredible uh, doctor. Um, This was a 33-year-old Karen Burmese man who presented with fever and abdominal pain for three days to a Doctors Without Borders refugee camp clinic, and he was transferred to our hospital on the Thai-Burma border. His history is significant for intermittent fever for three weeks, two to three watery stools a day, vomiting, and headache. On our exam, or actually this was the exam when he presented to the doctors with our borders camp, he had a temp of 100.6, a systolic blood pressure of 90, altered mental status, and an acute abdomen. They wrote loss of liver dullness, which was their way of saying tympanetic, and they were thinking there might be a perf. So what are your top diagnostic considerations in this case? Does anything come to mind? I think I heard typhoid. And why did typhoid come to mind? Because of why? Yeah, so it's, it can lead to a bowel perf. So we've got a timeline in this case that's very interesting. It's very different than our dengue case, right? In that this is a fever for three weeks. That's a really long time to have a fever. That is not normal. And famously, typhoid, if, it is, if your body doesn't get rid of it, it can get to those Peyer's patches and cause a terminal ileum perforation. All right, any other diagnostic considerations? Regardless of cause, what else does this guy have? So we're thinking typhoid might be the reason. He probably has an abdominal perforation. He's got a systolic blood pressure of 90. So he's septic, yeah. So one of the things on this table that I really appreciate is their first stop is, are they septic or not? Right? Do the Q-SOFA or whatever uh, assessment you want to do to rule out sepsis. Regardless of cause, make sure you don't forget about just management of sepsis. So how would you proceed? I'm going to give you guys some additional information from this case. This was not rainy season, so we were thinking it's actually not very likely to be a mosquito-borne disease. No one else was having those at that time. Uh, An upright abdominal film showed free air under the diaphragm, so kudos to those doctors on the border who picked that out on a physical exam. That's good. Um, The CBC showed leukocytosis and a high neutrophil count, and the malaria smears were negative. On your PDF, um, next to the box one that has that taxonomic differential, there's another box that says narrow your differential with the white cell count. And if you think about the acuity of this fever case, this is over 14 days, and this person has a leukocytosis. Um, And part of what's going on with this person is they also have a PERF. So there's sepsis going on. So that that explains that high neutrophil count. Um, Typhoid is under the acute fever side, um, but typhoid with this complication moves it into this sepsis with perf category. So this was a case of typhoid. Good job. And that's also called enteric fever. Um, typhoid means typhus-like. Its causes are the salmonella, enterica, serotypes, typhi, and paratyphi. Those are gram-negative rods. 
like the little blue capsules with kind of cool-looking wheels, kind of like a Jawa sand crawler in my simple mind. Um, Funky fact for you guys is that typhoid was super common in the U.S., right? Typhoid Mary, you guys have probably heard of that case, and um, but really declined with hand washing, one of the most important public health interventions we've ever come up with probably. And uh, spread of typhoid is fecal oral. Um, the pathophys, as I mentioned, with typhoid or enteric fever is invasion through the intestinal barrier. It's phagocytosed, and then it replicates, and that's why it can get into these spots like the pyres patches and cause a perf. The clinical picture, and we'll kind of talk about at the end, framing your fever. The clinical picture of typhoid is fever plus headache plus GI symptoms. Um, Dengue, as an example, doesn't usually have a whole lot of GI symptoms. It can have, you know, if they have a bad hepatitis, maybe a little bit of nausea, not wanting to eat. But that's not the main story. Whereas typhoid, there's often, usually, a GI type of complaint. There are uh, rose spots that can famously happen with typhoid. I never saw them. Uh, I've heard you can, you can never see rose spots on anyone with darker skin. So in brown or black patients, you probably won't see rose spots. Um, but in a lighter skin person, you might. They're like faint petechiae on the upper chest that can happen with typhoid. The course of typhoid is three to four weeks to resolution or you perf. And in this case, that doctor who did everything uh, took him to the OR, uh, per string sutured his uh, ileum and uh, got him on antibiotics, gave him sepsis, you know, IV fluids, and he got better. Diagnosis of typhoid is... Uh, Historically, with the Weedall test, it's not a very good test. Uh, there are much better tests now, uh, so TIFIDOT and other rapid diagnostic tests are probably the most common way to diagnose it. Uh, bone marrow or blood cultures are the gold standard. Uh, and a third-generation cephalosporin, um, such as ceftriaxone, typically will cover it. There is the uh, emergence of extensively drug-resistant typhoid, so you do have to think about your own uh, situation. Uh, and uh, Cipro or chloramphenicol could still be go-tos if you need them, uh, depending on where you are and your access to medications. Um, remember that the vaccine for typhoid is important. So it's important for pre-travel. It's important to get that boosted regularly when you're working on the field. And it's important to remember that it's only 70% effective. So it's good but just because someone's had the typhoid vaccine doesn't mean they don't have typhoid. Okay? Keep it on your differential. It's very ubiquitous. Case three pearls. Expand your differential. Don't exchange it. So cosmopolitan causes are everywhere in the world by definition. Um, you, you don't want to forget about that, right? All the, the saying we learn, common things are common. Um, flu, whatever. Um, but you do need to expand into thinking about things that you wouldn't see in the non-tropics like typhoid, um, or I should say you wouldn't see as often. Don't forget sepsis management. That's my other pearl from case three. Any questions about that case? All right. Keeping on moving here. Case four, fever and headache. Another headache. A 23-year-old Filipino female presents with four days of fever and mild headache and myalgias. Physical exam notes a tired-appearing woman with a temp of 39 Celsius and conjunctivitis. It's rainy season, and her farm fields are flooded. So I gave you a little bit of risk exposure in the season. The temperature in Celsius is 39. I like to tell learners, think about 38, 
Celsius is equal to 100.4 Fahrenheit. So there's your fever measure, 38. And 40 Celsius with the 4 in it is equivalent to 104 Fahrenheit fever. So if you can just remember those two numbers, you've got kind of nice brackets that help you with Celsius. So she has a fever, she has a headache, she has myalgias, and she has conjunctivitis. That's kind of interesting. What blood tests would you most like to get if you could get them? CBC, great choice. CBC, and if you can get it, get a diff on your white count. What else? Anyone want a malaria smear? Yeah, it's rainy season. Always think malaria. Malaria can kill so quickly, so don't ever ignore the possibility of malaria. So this is um, an approach to undifferentiated fever for you. So if you're just kind of blanket, this person has a fever, I'm not sure why, I think it's an infection. If you can get these three blood tests, thick and thin smear for malaria, if you're in a malarial area, CBC with a white count, with a diff if you can get it, and blood cultures. Those are your three kind of go-tos. Obviously, if you have other rapid tests you can do, HIV, uh, malaria, typhoid, uh, you might do those as well. But um, what you can do is if you can get those, and at least the CBC, then you can also look at the acuity of the fever and then use an approach like in box two and kind of figure out really narrow what do they have. So this is a person with a four-day fever, very acute. It hasn't gone on a long time. Um, She's got a headache and conjunctivitis. And let's say we got her lab results and she had a negative malaria smear, elevated white count with 85% neutrophils, normal liver function tests and liver enzymes, and an elevated creatinine. Based on the history, physical, and lab results, what do you think this most likely is? Go ahead and look at box two. You're going to look under acute fever, less than 14 days, and she has an elevated white count with leukocytosis. She's in flooded farm fields. Any guesses on what she has? Lepto. That is exactly right. And why do you think it's lepto? She, it definitely fit the category as we narrowed our differential. And what else points that way? The eyes, the conjunctivitis. Anything else? The flooding, yeah, so the exposure. So that is a classic case of lepto. Uh, the numbers are not well known about how many people have lepto around the world or get it. It's common in rural and urban slums in the tropics. There are cases in the U.S. as well. We had one at our hospital this past year um, that almost got missed. Uh, It was a person working that did a whole bunch of work in a flooded basement. Um, So that was interesting. Uh, The cause is leptospira interrogans. So that's one of those three spirochetes. And it got its name because the end of its little spiral tail looks like a question mark. So that's why it's called interrogans. Um, It is spread by mammal urine, especially rat urine. So when you're thinking of um, rainy season, that makes you think of mosquito-borne disease, but it can also make make you think of flooding, which should make you think of lepto. Um, Clinically, um, lepto has an incubation that's longer, 10 to 21 days. Um, It is usually anicteric. Um, and it usually, uh, it often has conjunctivitis because the person rubbed their eye and that became the way that the lepto got into them through that mucosa. 
That's 90% of cases. 10% of the cases can have icteric or wheels syndrome, and that's a very a much more deadly version of lepto. It's treatable by penicillins and doxycycline, um, just like you would think other spirochetes, like syphilis, are treated. Um, and a tip for you that's kind of an aside is more for travel medicine. If you are going to a malarial area or sending someone to a malarial area where they also might have exposure to lepto, maybe they're going to do an adventure triathlon swim that includes the Mekong River, then doxycycline is a good pre-travel choice. You can cover malaria and lepto. Case four pearls for you. Narrow your differential by categorizing the acuity of the fever, and that's box two, and narrow your differential with three key tests. CBC, with diff if you can get it, malaria, and blood culture. Any questions about lepto or case four? All right. Moving right along, this is case five of seven. This is fever and, once again, headache. Um, This is a 24-year-old Cambodian male. He lived slightly down the street from us, and he presented to the district hospital near us with fever and headache. Uh, He also had abdominal pain and hematemesis times one. On his initial physical exam, he was afebrile, but then on repeat exam, which is very important to do, he had a temp of 40, which is how much Fahrenheit? 104, high fever. Uh, Systolic blood pressure of 90, so he is septic. He's got a heart rate of 120. He's alert, oriented, slightly jaundiced. His lungs were clear. Um, His right upper quadrant was tender. He had no guarding and no rebound. What further information would you like? All right, so once again, risk exposure. Has he been swimming, uh, eating shellfish? Um, This was in our region right by the Mekong River. Um, There was no malaria in the town because there had been enough deforestation that they're basically along the Mekong River in that region, there was no malaria. But he had recently gone to the forest for a job, and there was malaria in the forest. So that was high on our list. Anything else? All right. He was otherwise in good health. And what were we most concerned about then? Sepsis and malaria. Yeah. All right. Um, So what tests do you want? CBC, malaria smears, blood culture if you can get it. All right. His CBC uh, showed a low white count, leukopenia, with a higher lymphocyte count on the diff, low platelets, and a low hemoglobin. Full bone marrow suppression, which is famous for some viruses, some rickettsiae, malaria for sure, especially falciparum malaria, uniquely, and typhoid. So uh, it fits that. If you look at your box, um, he's definitely fitting the malaria box. Uh, But his thick and thin malaria smear were negative. His HIV was negative. Blood culture was not available. He had an elevated liver enzymes, elevated creatinine. His glucose was 60. And hypoglycemia should also make you think of malaria. And there was blood in his urine, which also points toward malaria. So... Looking back on this case, that's what it looks like. I didn't follow, uh, I wasn't working there during this case, and this case actually had a sad outcome. 
And that's not to say that it couldn't have happened if I was there by any stretch. The patient was treated initially for malaria, but his anti-malarial medication was stopped after the first smear was negative. I, I see a head shaking. That's a bad move. You have not ruled out malaria by one negative thick and thin smear. Um, he was given antibiotics appropriately for broad sepsis coverage. IV maintenance fluids were administered with dextrose initially. So there was good initial management for sepsis and malaria. But the patient had a few more episodes of hematemesis, became obtunded, became tachypnic, and he died 12 hours after admission. A completely healthy young man. And why did he die? He had malaria. Malaria is a medical emergency. It's your number one by far big killer of tropical um, fever uh, in the returning traveler. Uh, when they looked at 3,800 plus returning travelers who went to uh, the hospital for a complaint, many of those were for fever. Uh, most of those fever ca- causes were malaria. There were 13 out of those 3,800 returning travelers that died. 11 of them had malaria. So always take malaria seriously. Um, It's Plasmodium falciparum that is the number one killer. That's because it invades all ages of red blood cells, not just some, like some of the other Plasmodia that cause malaria. It causes bone marrow suppression, and it causes the red blood cells that it invades to be knobby. And so they start blocking all the microcapillaries, and you get things like black water fever, which is the blood in the urine. Uh, And you can get, obviously, uh, mental status changes, too. Um, So that's a little glance at malaria, and that was a a case that shows how quickly it can kill. Um, Malaria has a longer incubation often, but it's a very broad range, 7 to 30 days. It's famous for having paroxysmal fevers. Um, We saw in this case the guy didn't have a fever initially, but then he had one later. But one important point is that that usually doesn't follow those rules. Um, After a person has malaria for a few days, they start to develop that periodicity. Um, But you shouldn't lean on that to kind of discern what type of malaria this is or whether it's malaria or not. So thick and thin smears, uh, rapid tests are excellent. The WHO has a whole resource where you can look at the part of the world you're serving in to develop the uh, to to determine the best uh, rapid test for where you are um, for malaria. And then the treatment for malaria in Africa and Asia is largely the artemisinin uh, combination therapy. In contrast to the 80s mosquito, um, which our first case was dengue. We used our bed nets, but dengue is a frenzy feeder, or the 80s Egypti mosquito. It feeds whenever it wants to, all day. Bed nets don't stop that one as much, but bed nets are excellent against the Anopheles mosquito, which is much more the preferred night biter. And it's a little more brown, and it feeds with its bottom up. The 80s mosquito feeds with its bottom down. And as if you needed more information, but this is kind of a review Just thinking about the vectors, it's Anopheles that spreads malaria. It's Aedes that spreads yellow fever, dengue, chick, and Zika. And then I threw in Culex there as well, which is a small brown mosquito that spreads Japanese encephalitis, West Nile virus, and lymphatic filariasis. All right, I mentioned, yeah, question. All right. Yeah. But uh, that story made me think harder. 
All right. So just a, a comment from the audience that uh, a friend had malaria, two negative um, rapid diagnostic tests. Those rapid tests had expired. So make sure you're using tests that have not expired, that are heat stable, that they've been appropriately stored. And a general rule with malaria is you need three negative smears before you've ruled it out. And if it's high on your list and you're worried about malaria, just keep treating it. Okay? Uh, it can kill too quickly. Um, the other thing with the rapid diagnostic test is make sure you know, if, is it just testing for falciparum? Because other malarias, though not as often deadly, can still be deadly. All right. So the thick and thin smear, real quick, that's what it looks like. Um, that is done. The thick smear helps you make the diagnosis. Uh, and then the thin smear, where the red cells are spread out, helps you speciate, so which type of plasmodium, and it helps you know the parasitic load that's in the body at that time. So our case five pearls in regions of risk keep malaria high on your differential. If malaria, and specifically plasmodium falciparum malaria, is on your differential, treat until proven otherwise. In hyperendemic areas for malaria, remember that malaria may be positive, but not the cause of fever. That also gets tricky, but that's true in a lot of tropical settings. We're treating people for an illness, and they have malaria, but they live with that fairly often. Um, and so don't get thrown off. And then lastly, for case five, treat empirically with three key antimicrobials. I love this part because for me, overwhelmed, I'm not sure what to do. Um, in that first moment of caring for this person, you can buy yourself time by how to treat the I don't know what in the world it is fever. In many low-resource settings, we might not have the desired testing available, or we can't get it quickly, and we're worried about a lot of things. So a combination of these three antimicrobials will cover most urgent causes and give you time to think. Um, and I think this is from Oxford uh, where I got this. Malaria treatment, um, and remember falciparum can kill quickly, so you get that on board right away. A third-generation cephalosporin, that's going to kill your cosmopolitan stuff, uh, in large part, not all of them, but it also is going to cover leptospirosis pretty well and typhoid. And then the last one here, never let them die without doxy. That's your little saying to remember. Doxycycline covers rickettsiae, such as typhus, African tick bite fever. It, co it covers Borrelia and lepto. Um, there are cases in the U.S., in the ER, where patients have died with a returning returning traveler with fever, or even people in wherever, Texas, places where uh, they got a tick bite and they didn't get doxycycline quick enough. All right, case six. A 25-year-old female medical student presents to you with the complaint of fever for five days. She traveled to Tanzania for a two-week global health service trip five weeks ago. That's a long time ago. She followed insect bite precautions and took malaria prophylaxis with no missed doses. She does not recall any tick bites. She ate carefully. She spent a weekend at a lakeside beach and swam a few hours one afternoon, but was careful to keep her head above water. Physical exam shows low-grade fever, no other remarkable findings, and her white count differential shows a high eosinophil count. Um, her, her absolute eosinophil count was 1,000 per high-powered field. So generally speaking, over 450 or 600, depending on the cutoff you're using, would be a high absolute eosinophil count. 
So she has a fever. She has had that fever for only five days, so it's acute. She's got a very long incubation period, five weeks. And she's got eosinophilia. Any guesses on what this is? Schisto. Schisto, great. And this is pretty classic for a variant of schisto called Katayama fever. Um, This is acute schisto in someone that's never been exposed to it before. And her exposure was part of the key to this case. She was in lake water. Um, And so one famous lake for this is Victoria, Lake Victoria. So this was a case of Katayama fever. It occurs in non-immune hosts, um, the acute form of schisto. It has a 2 to 12-week incubation period. So there's not a whole lot of diseases on our list for fevers that happen after that long of an incubation period. Uh, Malaria is on your list, and schisto should be on your list. And schisto is very invasive as a parasite. It's a fluke, and it gets into our body tissue. And any time any worms get into our body tissue, that causes eosinophils to go up. If the worm is not in an invasive time of its cycle or it's not invasive, like Giardia, we won't get an elevated eosinophil count. Schisto and strongyloides are famous for eosinophilia. Schisto is considered the second most important parasite in the world as far as burden. Um, it is uh, Hematobium is the species that is most important by burden of disease, and that's in Africa. We saw Schistosoma mekongi. Uh, in a freshwater, slow-flowing area where there were snails uh, in the Mekong, where we worked. Um, but it is the freshwater snail that's part of the cycle. The cercaria of schisto, there's a picture of one, are one of the coolest-looking microbes, I think, um, that we have, but uh, very deadly. And its eggs cause fibrosis. And that can be such a problem, it can cause bladder cancer. Um, so schisto is a huge burden, um, and especially in Africa, um, and then, but in terms of our case, where we're thinking of fever, we want to think uh, about acute schisto and have that on our differential for eosinophils. Um, in the world of helminths, you have roundworms, tapeworms, and flukes. Most roundworms and tapeworms respond to albendazole, um, but most flukes respond to praziquantel. An exception to that response in the roundworms is strongyloides. So I like to think of strongyloides as stronger, and so it doesn't care as much about the albendazole that you tried to deworm that person with. So uh, strongyloides is typically treated with ivermectin. Um, This is not the main focus of the topic, but fever in the returning traveler, um, we can ask these same risk exposure questions Um, And just as an aside, one of the most important things um, when you're seeing fever is to also remember to ask, did you travel somewhere? That might get missed. But in travelers especially, or people that have gone from one location to another, maybe a rural setting to the city, use the incubation period to help you narrow the likely cause. If it's less than 10 days, we lean more toward the viruses or rickettsiae. If it's more than 21 days, that list gets pretty narrow and includes uh, schisto and malaria, as well as a lot of the hepatitis fevers. All right, looking around the world, fever and returning travelers, um, malaria and dengue are high on the list, higher from certain regions than others. Uh, malaria is highest in West Africa. 
Um, here's a table um, from 2013, so dated, but malaria, number one, uh, as cause of fever in returning travelers at 21%. Dengue, rickettsia, and typhoid are all on the list. And then I bracketed diarrheal and respiratory illnesses. So there's your cosmopolitan common causes of fever, uh, and those account for around 30%. One of the take-homes of this case is that local epidemiology in real time can also help you know what's going on. So um, if you know they were traveling to one part of the world, it's helpful to know, well, what's going on in that part of the world? And healthmap.org is an excellent tool in real time to know what's happening. What are the outbreaks going on in the region where that person was? If you're in the U.S. and you're worried about a arbovirus, you can also look at ArboNet, and that's a nice map of what's the latest with West Nile virus in my region or Lyme disease. So our K6 pearls narrow the differential for fever using incubation period, and that's often more helpful in a returning traveler. Use tools to know real-time epidemiology like HealthMap or ArboNet. And in fever with eosinophilia, remember invasive parasites like Schisto and Strongyloides. All right. Oops, I skipped ahead. I gave it away. All right, K7, fever and ulcer. All right, a 17, this is our final case. A 17-year-old Kenyan male presents with five days of low-grade fever and enlarging scalp lesion. He's a shepherd and reports cleaning a dead goat seven days ago. On physical exam, he has a painless eschar, uh, which is a scabbed ulcer with surrounding edema classically described as heaped-up borders. Uh, what is the likely diagnosis, even if you saw it? All right, anthrax. So cutaneous anthrax, uh, the spores typically enter via cutaneous route or maybe GI or respiratory route. So the herbivorous mammals are a common source. Um, this is a shepherd, uh, so that's where he got it. And then uh, in the world of the tropics, we think about causes of ulcers. Um, there's a few, uh, quite a few. One ulcer causer is anthrax, and it's famous for having a heaped-up border around its ulcer. Um, another ulcer is African tick bite fever, and I'll show you a picture of that one in a second. Um, and that's famous for its tache noir. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the black kind of scabbed ulcer. So this pearl that I want to give you is to frame the fever. This person has fever and what? Kind of like going back to the step one of problem list. What problems do they have? They have fever and what? Headache, conjunctivitis, a rash, an ulcer. What's going on? So if they have fever and diarrhea, that's going to point us to traveler's diarrhea. It might, and malaria is there on the list, norovirus. If they have fever and rash, we will think of dengue and HIV. Um, if they have a fever and an eschar, we're going to think of African tick bite fever, which is the one on the upper right. Um, if they have exposure, we might think of anthrax, like the case we just showed. If they have fever and petechiae or purpura, we're going to think of sepsis and meningococcus. If they have jaundice, we're going to think of hepatitis and liver flukes. If they have lymphadenopathy, HIV comes up on the list, visceral leishmaniasis, pops up on the list if we're in that region. Um, typhoid, fever and conjunctivitis, like our case. That's lepto. 
And then fever and relative bradycardia. One last clinical pearl for you, that dengue, typhoid, and rickettsiae are famous for patients having a fever, but they don't have the corresponding tachycardia that you usually get with a fever. It doesn't mean you've ruled it out, but if you see someone with that strange discrepancy, think of dengue and typhoid and rickettsiae. And then lastly, fever with altered mental status, you'd want to definitely think of malaria. So our K7 and final pearls are perform a careful, repeated exam to look for evolving signs to help narrow your differential and narrow your differential by framing the fever. Um, so wrapping up, and we're almost out of time. Hopefully we got a little time for questions. Um, empiric treatment. If you're not sure what's going on and testing is limited, I already talked to you about those three drugs, right? Um, if it's viral and you're treating with, uh, for HIV, remember to be careful of immune reconstitution syndrome. So you should rule out tuberculosis and CMV retinitis before you're treating someone with antiretrovirals. Uh, malaria, anti-malarials, gram-positive, gram-negative sepsis, and typhoid, ceftriaxone. Rickettsiae and spirochetes generally will respond to doxy. TB's got its own list. Acute schisto, praziquantel, like most flukes, and strongyloides, albendazole, or probably better, ivermectin. So that's kind of that list if you're not sure of what you can throw at it. Wrapping up, let's review your list. Uh, we won't hit all of them, but let's see if we can fill in these blanks. Get the full story of risk exposure. Avoid NSAIDs until proven non-hemorrhagic. Consider local causes early. And then what's the next one? Expand your differential. Don't exchange it. Common things are common everywhere in the world. Don't forget... Sepsis management, narrow your differential with three key tests, which are CBC with diff if you can get it, malaria smear, blood culture, excellent. And treat empirically with three key antimicrobials, cephalosporin, doxy, antimalarial, very good. And in regions of risk, keep malaria high on your differential if Blank, think of invasive parasites. Eosinophils, narrow the differential by framing the fever. That's all I have for you. Thank you very much. Um, I'll stick around. Do we have any time for questions? All right. I have two minutes left if anyone wants to ask. Yeah. Uh, utility of rapid diagnostics. Yeah. So first of all, rapid diagnostics, make sure they're heat stable or that you have the um, storage needed to keep them, keep track of their expiration dates. Very high utility. I mentioned Typhidot, excellent for typhoid, very sensitive, very specific. Plasmodium falciparum, super important um, to have in stock. HIV, super important to have in stock. So those... Those three would be my top three to have if you're in the tropics. Any other comments on it? All right. Any other questions? Yeah. Transfusion principles, but you have a very limited blood supply. 
Wow, that's a tough one. So transfusion principles, uh, we generally, in hemorrhagic fever, so specific to my experience, would be dengue. Um, in general, first of all, with malaria, you generally are not transfusing. Um, and with dengue, um, you would do maybe platelet transfusions. Um, but you're going um, you're gonna to generally be in a situation of obviously needing to get them to critical care if it's not where you are. And I think I'll leave it there, but we could talk more offline. Any other questions? All right, thank you. I'll stick around if you guys want to talk.